5: Okay, bonger, bonger. when do you talk a native language? I just started today. Well, what'd he say?
4: What'd he say? I don't even know what I said.
1: Do I need
3: you, oh, do I, am, baby? Of course I do. Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrello turn an island paradise into the zaniest madhouse in the seven seas. Charlita puts a gleam in Duke Mitchell's eyes.
1: Your smile
3: only added life to your masquerade. Muriel Landers puts the whammy on Sammy. Sammy!
5: Run for your life! Go on, get out of here, run for your life!
1: Ramona, the romantic chimp takes off on a romantic chase of her own.
4: Strange, but interesting.
0: Really think so? Mm-hmm. What are you
3: tell me? Lugosi finds the perfect subject to turn a gorilla into a goof. A hand versus a Look, what are
4: you, what are you trying to tell me? I, I don't understand a word. What, what, what am I, dumb or something? Don't, don't answer that. Oh. Now stupid Mitchell. I'm running this game, you understand? And don't talk back. Yeah, now put it on, because we gotta get out
0: that door.
6: Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rich Whitley.
2: Oi, gales, gags, and goofs. I think that's, that says it all. Also with us is Mr. Jamie
6: Klein. That's
3: me. It's too bad you can't see my background.
6: And last but not least, we are joined by Ms. Freddie Duke.
0: Hi, nice to meet everybody. And I know some of you, but...
6: We are kicking off Shocktober 2021 with a look at William Bodine's Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. It's the 1952 vehicle that stars Bella Lugosi, as you may have guessed from the title, as well as the comedy duo. And I use that term loosely. Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo. They're a knockoff Martin and Lewis team, and they're found on a little island in the Pacific that strangely is populated by stock footage of African animals. We will be spoiling this film if that is possible. So you have been warned. Now, I am going to go around the room here and ask when people saw this for the first time. Very curious, Freddie, when you saw it for the first time. But I will start with you, Rich. When was the first time you saw Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla?
2: First time I saw it was with uh, Jamie. Jamie and I were writing partners and we were writing. We had written two pilots for CBS for Maurice Duke the producer of this opus, Freddie's Famous Father. And so we were writing for Maurice and we loved working with him. Every other word was motherfucker or cocksucker. And so uh, we loved him. And he said, you know, Jamie and I were writing a screenplay for 20th Century Fox. And we had offices next to Maurice. He called us in. He goes, hey, I'm old. You're young. Let's do something together. And so we can fill in a lot of the blanks before that. But the first time we saw it was Jamie and I wanted to say thank you to Maurice. And we went down on Hollywood Boulevard. We went to Larry Edmonds and a couple stores. We bought him posters, bought Maurice posters of Bela Lugosi meets the Brooklyn Gorilla, lobby cards, the Atomic Kid of his movies and got a VHS, probably at Eddie Brant's of the movie. And we gave them as gifts to Maurice to say thank you. And he goes, let's watch the fucking movie. I'll let Jamie fill in the details, but uh, let's just say it was an X-rated version of Mystery Science 3000. I know that he was proud of the
3: movie in a very odd way. He was best friends with Bud Grant, who was the president of CBS at the time. And I think Bud Grant uh, had produced a special or something, the worst movie of all time, which is, is, I think, how they met. So I I think that that, uh, Maurice really loved the moniker of the producer of the worst movie of all time.
2: In watching that movie, if I could share some of the X-rated things, you saw Freddie's terrific documentary on her dad, fuck him. So uh, in watching that movie, we're watching the movie and it's all the, hey, uh, that jungle girl, uh, she gave me a handjob in the monogram parking lot. I could go on with other uh, sexual uh, acts that he did with every jungle, every woman that played a jungle girl in the movie. You can imagine what they all were. And it was, pretty damn funny Uh, so it was hysterical and if you've seen freddie's terrific documentary you know that that's uh not surprising
6: so freddie as the daughter of the producer when is the first time you see the film
0: it would come on late at night like like pretty much in the middle of the night so i would catch pieces of it see his name in the credits didn't really stick with it probably didn't see it all And I'm not sure I ever have, but I have. And it's basically unwatchable unless maybe you're a big pothead or something, you know, or you really like these B films. It's so wacky. I don't smoke pot, but I'm positive that's the way to see this film.
2: In preparing for today, remembering that time when Jamie and I bought those posters for Maurice, I have this. And it's signed by Maurice. And, yes, it says, to Richard, full of shit, Maurice Duke.
3: Mine is hanging in my office, and it says "Kiss my brace." He had polio as a child, which is an, very interesting, and he had those old-time aluminum crutches that had a, a cuff around the uh, the forearm. And he was not—he's not ashamed. He was just as uh, just as full of life as anybody I've ever known in my life. I mean, he was really remarkable. He was really unstoppable. This guy.
2: A real force of nature. We were in a trailer. We were afraid if Fox hated our script, they'd just hook up the trailer and drag us down Pico Boulevard. Which they ended
3: up doing, actually. They they did. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's was like, honest, the third act will be better. I remember in his, whenever we went to Breeze's office, which was like 15 feet away, it was just, oh my God. It was like one of the Weir brothers were there. And we met the guy who wrote the lyrics for Undecided, Sid Robin. And all these people and they were like, oh, my God, (laughs) it was just and we knew who they were. They probably thought we were 12 years old, but we knew who these guys were because of our love. How did
0: you know who they all were?
2: Because we loved old movies. In those days, there was the the art and the Sherman and the Vagabond showing all revival movies in those days. I would. And then when VHS came, I would call every local station and ask what their running time was of the film in a two hour slot because I had my Leonard Malton movie books and I would know the exact running time. And so if it was three minutes less, I wouldn't DV, I wouldn't uh, VHS, you know, time. And so I loved all these movies. This was, you know, this is the
3: business I wanted to be in. So I loved it.
0: You are a true movie nerd. I am. I love that.
3: Well, yeah, with Sid Robin, when Maurice said he wrote the lyrics for uh, Undecided, I started singing it and he couldn't believe it. I mean, and, you know, I was, and I mean, what were we with? We were 27, maybe 25, something like that. And these guys were already kind of past their prime and a little, pardon the phrase, but irrelevant, you know, and they had no idea. I was in a dry cleaner. I was in a dry cleaner and the person in front of me, the guy said, What's your name? He said, Sammy Fain." When Sammy Fain, he wrote Love is a Many Splendored Thing. And I started singing it right there. And he was like, oh, my God, how do you know that? And he was like, you know, 70. And here's this 22-year-old kid singing singing a, a song that he wrote, you know, 50 years ago. And so it was just kind of like how we were and how we are.
0: Did you guys meet Henry Nemo?
2: We did not
3: meet Nemo, but we did meet Bob Hilliard. Bob Hilliard used to hang out there all the time. Who wrote uh, the, uh, Honey- the honeymooners? Honey- that's right. Honey- and actually, right- one of the Honey- honeymooners right. episodes references Bob Hilliard's name. He's our neighbor, Bob Hilliard. And these guys were all professionals, whether we knew them or not. It was it was just kind of like this gathering place for these for these guys, and it was uh, it was a lot of fun for us.
2: Now, Freddie, uh, Maurice uh, managed Sammy Petrillo and Duke Mitchell, right?
0: Yes, he usually managed the people that he put into movies. So he was like. Um, Package deal, like very early before people were doing that. I guess there's a, a thing against that with the agents right now to do too much packaging. That's why you guys had to sign off and not have agents for a while. But um he was like one of the fir- first people that did that. He handled Mickey Rooney, and he would his manager. Then he would put him in a movie. So you know, he he did that. Yeah, he a lot. Did,
3: it's handled Sabu too, right? And Joe Lewis and Hunts Hall.
0: Zero Mostel. Really? Wow. He handled, wait, he handled I Zero Mostel. That. Oh, my God. Mickey Rooney and Zero Mostel like, were probably the two really famous. Maybe he handled the Andrews sisters. and You know, a
1: lot.
3: Maxine and, and Laverne.
2: So wait a second. Hunts Hall, we're not going to have to tell the story now, Mike.
3: But you, Maybe.
2: Someone has to tell <laughs> the story. I, Jamie and I figured that this movie is a gateway drug to Maurice Duke. Freddie, I've got a question
6: though. Who's taller, your dad or Mickey Rooney?
0: Okay, my dad's five one. How tall is Mickey? Five two or three?
6: Maybe. Mm, maybe.
0: Maybe when you see them in pictures, and I have a lot of pictures of the two, they look the same height. Mickey got laid a lot. Okay. <laughs> every every woman, maybe my mom fucked Mickey. I don't know.
3: Hey, you know what, Freddie? Your dad was no slouch.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true.
2: Right. Half the cast of Bell Legosi meets the Brooklyn Gorilla. Like and, and we're not gonna mention how the chimp got the job. We're just we're not we're kind of afraid right now to mention that so Have
0: you ever had one of your podcasts go this x-rated that quickly?
6: Not that quickly, no. I mean Salo 120 Days of Sodom got a little x-rated, but yeah.
0: I always think about him in this climate, the Me Too climate, because I mean the things he said, but he said it with like a twinkle in his eye. When he would talk about somebody's tits, he'd be like, nice tits. But really, like, no woman was ever offended. I never saw one woman offended. Never.
3: It was remarkable that he was remarkable that way. He was. I
2: remember when he first started telling us about the movie, and I had not heard of it, he said that the goal was to have billboards and posters outside the theater without their names so that people would think they're actually paying to see Dean and Jerry.
3: I believe that the original intention of the movie. It, it, because it was made right after My Friend Irma and My Friend Irma Goes West, which were huge. And Martin and Lewis just exploded on the scene. And Maurice, I guess, discovered Sammy Petrillo and Duke Mitchell in a nightclub act and started handling them. And then, this, and then thought, well, let's make a movie with these guys. And uh, at, I think it was at Republic or Monogram. He was a B-movie producer at a B-movie studio. So they put these guys in this movie for the sole purpose of making the movie and selling it to Paramount to keep them from distributing the movie. They shot it in 10 days at a cost of $50,000. I've heard several versions of this, but one of the versions was Paramount heard about it, saw it, made an offer, and the other producer turned the offer down and said, that's okay, we'll distribute it. Jack Broder. And Maurice went, You know, you'll pardon the expression, apeshit, because, you know, he he just wanted to sell it to Paramount just to get it out and make their money back.
0: They were sending cease and desist letters and threatening Broder. And because the people who handled Jerry and Dean were very protective of their their rights. So they kept sending cease and desist letters. But somebody sneaked and saw the film and went, oh, fuck it. Release that piece of shit. You know, no one's going to care.
6: In your doc, isn't there a story where Jerry actually sat down and watched the movie with your dad in the theater?
0: Hal Wallace, maybe? Yeah.
6: Yeah. And Jerry's just like, yeah, good luck.
0: (laughs) But in the beginning, Jerry was mad, and he was a good friend of my father's, and he was offended. Then he was mad at helping Sammy's career because he was the first person on the Colgate hour to give Sammy the job of the impersonation of him. And then he was like regretted doing that because Sammy then made this little small act, a thing, the rest of his life. That's all one note. That's it.
2: In the total filmmaker. And Lewis is always talking about wanting to be like Chaplin and write and direct and star in his movies. Yet at the same time, Chaplin was a big star. There was a guy named Billy West who was doing spot on Chaplin impersonations and doing two readers that were seen by millions, you know? And so you think it'd be some form of flattery, but not Jerry. No, I
0: no, Jerry's, Jerry was a tricky one.
2: Jamie, you said 10 days for 50 grand. I also read six days for 12,000. So it was like, you know, you never know. It's like, uh but, but the, cool, the thing I read was that Sammy Petrillo was only 17 years old.
0: Yeah, he was a kid. He was a kid, yeah.
2: Yeah. So the movie would have driven him to drink, but he wasn't old enough to buy one.
0: By the way, absolutely exquisite poster worth a lot of money. Like almost as much as what the film cost.
7: Right. <laughs> Do you
0: have one? I only have what you have with some beautiful lobby cards. I don't. Those posters are terribly expensive. I don't know why people love this movie. I guess because it's so camp.
2: Freddie, you went to that screening at the Cinematheque, right?
0: Well, you are my personal like Google alert for all things Maurice Duke or Bella Lugosi, and you told me that Leonard Maltin was having a film festival at the Egyptian three years ago, very recently before the pandemic. And it was like my dad was in a film festival. It was like the most exciting thing. And Broder's family went and my kids went. We all went and said there was a gorilla there. It was just like, how nice of Leonard Maltin to to do that.
2: Well, Freddie sent you that photo of Maurice with the chimp, right? Right. How cool is that photo? That's Uh, amazing. With with the cigars in his pocket, you know.
0: know, He always promised me he was going to give me that chimp as a gift. Like, <laughs> I feel like your pet. So I was really disappointed that he didn't really bring the chimp home, you know, right. to be my pet.
2: Instead, he gave you Samir Biotrillo as a gift, which was odd. Aside from Bella, I'm guessing the chimp was the most famous person of famous character in the movie, right? That... that
0: chimp has his own IMDB page.
2: Yes, right. Now, was that one of the cheetahs at the time? Because they kept on making Tarzan... Movies, right?
0: Oh, it could be. I mean, I think that I think that animal worked a lot, More, as much as Mickey Rooney almost.
6: How did Bella get involved with the film?
0: Because my dad saw him on the studio lot, thought, "I'll just hire him because he's got a name," and that way we could, They all thought they could throw the name into the title because he had a star name, but he was apparently um, addicted to morphine and wasn't the Bella Lugosi of before, but it brought a name to the movie, which is what you can't get a movie made now without a name.
2: Brad Pitt meets the Brooklyn gorilla. Just, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if that would work. I like how it's,
6: the article is a Brooklyn gorilla. Like there are many Brooklyn gorillas, like not the, a lot of gorillas just running around in Brooklyn.
0: I'll tell you that um I was so honored. I don't know when it was, 8, 10, 15 probably 15 years ago in the New York Times Magazine. All these famous people were asked, what movies would you take on an island if you were going and you were going to be on an island? What are the five top movies? And Christopher Guest, his last one was Bella Lugosi meets the Brooklyn Gorilla and apparently he Eugene Levy, all these people are obsessed because Christopher Guest like to have a thing about this movie. People do.
3: The Go Desert Island was Cola Cola. Cola Cola sounds like a commercial for some bubble water
2: (laughs) when you realize the reveal at the end that it's a dream because when you're watching the movie you're going wait a second that's just white guys wearing Hawaiian shirts made to look like natives and they were probably Maurice's friends or the car park guys or bouncers and then the reveal is oh they are bouncers and car park guys at the end of the movie and my movie that I have in a
0: festival turns out to be a dream i'm just copying everything
6: my dad did i kept waiting throughout the whole film because when they first are shown like we get this voiceover talking about these wild animals we're getting the the stock footage of all these things and then they were on their way to guam to basically entertain the troops kind of like setting this a little bit as far as like where we are in the timeline and they're all in Tuxedos and have this long growth of beards. I'm just like, how long have these guys been on here? What's going on? You know, like I'm asking all these questions like place and setting and background and all this. And then when it ends up being a dream, I'm like, oh, okay. Because for for a while I thought maybe it was like this endless loop, like they would eventually get back in tuxedos and their hair would grow out. And then like this thing happens to them all the time. They just keep waking up and interacting with Bella Lugosi. That would have been
3: better.
2: It would have been better. If Christopher Nolan had directed this, maybe that. Or Rian Johnson did Looper. So that would have worked. They're wearing beard. They have beards. How long were they lying in this? But you're right. It's like, how long were they there? That's like ridiculous, you know? And it's a good thing. Let's get you out of those clothes because we happen to
3: have neatly pressed chinos for you to wear. Yeah, well, that, that's the other thing is it is Bella's wearing a suit. I'm, I'm wondering, where does he get that dry cleaned. It's a white suit, and it's pressed. It's like, what? What? I'm going to a desert island. I better take my suit of armor. I know, yeah. What's a suit of armor doing there? It's very strange. How do they make the iron for the knockers on the door? Where does that, where does that come? <laughs> Just, but it's But it's a dream, so it's okay. It was a dream of extraordinary magnitude.
2: But let's give a shout-out to Tim Ryan, the screenwriter, who was married to Irene Ryan, who played Granny Clampett. I'm guessing a buddy of your dad's
0: everyone was. I remember going with buddy Epson and my dad out to the way out to the valley where I have to go tonight to see one of the Weir brothers perform yeah. wait
2: you went with your dad I, I, and buddy
0: I went Epson. off I went off to buddy Epson sorry I'm just like <laughs> because you,
2: you your dad and buddy Epson went off to the valley to see the Weir brothers perform. yeah and it's like that's like one of the best Hollywood stories.
0: Very was very tall. That's what I remember. About Buddy is he, you know, used to perform with the Weir Brothers, probably in Vaudeville. My dad is originally from Vaudeville. He was a harmonica player in a harmonica band, and then he realized he should just manage the band. He wouldn't have to perform. He'd make a lot more money. So then he parlayed that into becoming a producer. But they all know each other, knew each other. This whole group of people from Vaudeville.
2: I think your dad knew everybody.
0: He did. He really, really did. To the point where the only time, one time in my entire life, I would say, if I saw somebody, anyone famous, I'd be like, hi, I'm Maurice Duke's daughter. And they all knew him. Only person. The only one was Johnny Carson. It was at Nate Nell's at the deli. And I remember going, you must know my dad, (laughs) Maurice Duke. And if I say his name, people usually flip out and go, oh, my God, the Duke. Johnny Carson, like blank, nope, don't know your dad. I was
6: so offended. So Sammy and Duke wake up on this island, and they're taken in by these tribes people, who, to your point from earlier, are a lot of white people. There's Al Kakume, who I think is Hawaiian. I think he's Pacific Islander, and he's great. There's and there's Milton Newberger as Bongo, the witch doctor, who. Does he he ever take take off off that mask the whole time? Okay. Even eats with it. As one does. And if we haven't made this clear before, Duke is the Dino of the group, and Sammy is the Jerry of the group. And, of course, Dino has to get laid right away. So he's met up with uh, Charlita as Nona. Charlita, who I kept looking for a last name for, but I guess she was like the Madonna of her day. She did not have a last name.
2: Was she a singer or an actress under
6: contract or? I mean, she does have one soundtrack song that she sang Al Hombre in The Naked Dawn. But for the most part, I'm just seeing a lot of acting credits. And she was in a bunch of stuff. She was in 55 films
2: or TV series. Did your dad manage other people that were in the movie?
0: Probably or was fucking some of them. I don't know.
2: So whoever was behind that mask was someone different each week. Than-
0: By the way, my mother was, was probably pregnant with me when the movie came out and pregnant with my brother when they were making the movie.
6: Also, we have a lot of fat shaming in the mu- movie, thanks to Muriel yeah. Landers <laughs> as Saloma.
0: <laughs> Even if you read like Wikipedia about it, they're fat shaming in the description.
6: She seems like a very lovely person, and she definitely wants to get with Sammy, and he should just be happy about that because the guy is a twig but
2: but and at the end, when he wakes up, they are together, right yes, and he seems to be okay with it, which is great. He seems fine, you know, but you know she could probably be arrested because he's seventeen, but other than that. <laughs>
6: But I have to say, the person that impressed me the most in the entire film was Mickey Simpson as Chula, the uh, assistant to Bella the Ghosties, Dr. Zabor character. Mickey Simpson also was in a lot of stuff, but I don't know how. I mean, unless they just told him, like, do not play any emotion. I mean, he's basically the Tor Johnson of this
2: film. Time for go to bed. He probably went to the Tor Johnson School of Acting. I mean, not much emotion at all. But let me ask you, Mike, when you're talking about all these characters, going back to the story, it's like Bella gets so excited. He goes, now I can change a man into a gorilla. Why? Why? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Why? (laughs) Why The other thing is that he, he injected Ramona and she turned into a baby chimp. How does this indicate that you can turn now a human being into a gorilla? I don't understand the the connection there. You know, that's quite a Kierkegaardian leap there. Is that because
2: they think that because men evolved from apes, that's taking them backwards? Wait, wait, wait. Think? This I is all no Sammy's idea.
3: dream. Why are we trying to analyze
2: it? We're trying dream.
3: to for insights into Sammy.
2: I'm glad that it just reinforces that when you do have to think and just solve a problem, you pace back and forth. It's just, it's very important to
3: know. Yes, even if you're an ape. (laughs) Even if you're an ape, exactly. I love love the Um, charades. (laughs) You know, playing charades.
0: I think think they thought they were going to make a series of these movies. That was, you know, my dad's intention. That was Sammy's intention. Probably not Duke's. I don't think that that Duke was that keen on uh, being Sammy's partner or being He's, he really fancied himself a singer, a serious singer. So he wasn't keen on the whole thing. But my dad, and originally they thought they could make a series of pictures because my dad liked to make like a lot of teenage pictures or something, you know, like a series of them. But once this one was such a stinker, that was that was it. Until people saw it later on TV and got into the camp of it.
2: But then your dad started to produce the the, the, the teen... Driving the the rock and roll movies where well,
0: you and your thought, brother he did that before it he anything that was a new craze my dad jumped on and made movies about it. and whatever it took so like Louis Prima he went to to get have, find the money to make a twisting picture because twisting was in style he just liked the new crazes
2: his mentor was or someone like Sam Katzman I'm guessing. And uh, your dad, you know, like Sam Katzman and Arkoff and Corman, they're all kind of like, what's in the headlines? We're going to make a movie and we can get it out in eight weeks.
0: Yes. Get it out in a week. I don't
2: know. (laughs)
6: The thing about Duke Mitchell, I mean, fans of the projection booth will probably know Duke Mitchell mostly because he was the person behind gone with the Pope, which is one of these movies that was lost for years and grindhouse releasing put it out and he was writer director and star of gone with the pope because otherwise he was in some stuff that i recognize but that's the most famous one
2: i must admit i don't know that movie yeah well, sammy was in keyholes are
6: for peeping the La is the one that i saw and that whole thing of him talking about you know, this vacation he was on, I mean, it's very, I know it wasn't directed by Herschel Gordon-Lewis, but it felt very Herschel Gordon-Lewis as far as like, I have this footage that I'm going to use, and I'm going to just have this guy narrate over it and tell this story. So, kind of an interesting way of... Uh,
0: well, what year was that?
6: That was 61.
0: So, 10 years later, he got hired, and he starred in this movie, Sammy?
6: As if you could call it starring, I mean, a lot of it is him narrating uh, stock footage, basically, or like footage of like nudist camps and things. So it's like his, basically is his sex tourism and he's narrating the story.
5: Hey, I'll tell you what. I've
2: got precisely um, 30 minutes until I have to leave. Let's say we play one last
3: game of cards together, okay?
4: <laughs>
3: hey, take it easy, boy. I'll go away. I haven't seen them. I just looked at his IMDB page and it was like it was just a funny title.
2: I guess I haven't seen it. I'll wait till it comes out
6: on Criterion. Actually, since they are showing, I think they're showing a bunch of Doris Wishman stuff on Criterion channel. So oh really? He, yeah. So keyholes are for peeping might be on there. <laughs>
3: there
2: we go. Keyholes are for peeping. Um as Jamie used to say, write that
6: down and then cross, and then cross it. it out. I never realized how tall Bella Lugosi is, unless he's standing on an apple box in this, because he towers over everybody else in this film, other than his, his yeah. man at arms.
3: Yeah, and then he towers it over him. So I think that's I think that's standing in a hole, standing on an apple box. It just because it, it, he's like two feet taller than Bella Lugosi. In some of those shots, it's like I don't think so,
2: but I think Bella was legitimately taller than Duke Mitchell and yeah. Sammy Paterno.
0: Yeah, it seems like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: And it's like when you see Three Stooges shorts, it's like when they're with normal, regular people, they look very short. So that's a Shemp story. Should we tell the Shemp story, Jamie, or no? Yeah, I guess you can. Sure. Maurice was friends with Shemp. As Freddie, you could probably go in greater detail. Maurice had especially built car so he could drive because he had polio, right? So I think the steering wheel was where the passenger seat was, right? It was like Kind of
0: no, it was regular steering wheel, but on the steering wheel was something uh, right beside the wheel was the brake just attached to the to the steering wheel. So that he didn't have to use brakes with his feet. He wouldn't have touched the he couldn't have done it.
2: And he told the story that he was driving with Shemp, and Shemp rolled down the window and would yell out the windows they were driving. I'm driving
0: with a cripple. Help me! A cripple is driving this car. There are so many sick stories, even with Jerry Lewis and everyone, about like making fun of my dad's physical handicap. But they're great, I mean, they're such good Hollywood stories. By the way, the very first time I ever realized that my dad knew famous people were the three stooges, because they were with us at dinner. I was highly aware of who they were. And he knew everyone, Sammy Davis Jr., every single person. But that, those three, you know, a couple of the Stooges were with us at dinner. And I was like, oh, my God, I was a little child. Like, they're famous. Everyone's looking at us. It was the first, you know, moment of realizing that.
3: They didn't serve pie, did they? I hope. But that that's
2: exciting that, like, all these big stars, the ones you realize are the Stooges, you know.
0: Not Mickey Rooney, not Sammy, not Frank, the Stooges. And then here's another quickie. Harry Morton was this character that all the comics were friends with. And he might have been used as a name in in a famous television show or something. But so Harry Morton is a prankster. And they were in this open car. Harry, Jerry Lewis, my dad. And they see three broads, as they say, on the street. And they ask them if they want to ride. And they think they, they, they can only see the heads. And, and they go, wow, three guys are asking us. Jerry wasn't totally famous yet. He was a comic, but not all the way there. And they get in the car. They go to this club. They, you know, they just picked him up off the street. They get in the car. Now, my dad gets out first because he takes a long time with his brace and his cane and he's got to click the brace, takes a long time, and he starts walking the way he walks, which is from side to side. Jerry walks from side to side. Harry does the same Gimpy walk, like, like, picked on these, you know, pick, got picked up by three handicapped men.
3: <laughs> I never heard that one.
0: Harry mean spirited. but it's funny.
2: No, it's not. It's kind of showing what it's good friends sweet, they were actually. and how much they loved your dad i think it's kind of sweet you know it's like
0: no, then jerry did what he did for you know muscular dis- he would not want people to know that he was mocking a disabled person it seems like
2: he's doing yes,
3: it for his friends. i don't see he that as mocking help. i see that as supporting
0: was, well they were doing it to fuck yes. with the women <laughs> with the women like oh god I mean, by the
2: time they three got out of the car and at the door of the restaurant, they were gone. Yeah. These women i got
3: to be at work in the morning. Yeah, I, I loved what your dad used to say about Phil Foster. When the check came to the table, he had the shortest arms in show business. Would never reach for the check. That's a he great said it, visual. He said it a lot
0: about Heath Walters, if anyone knew who that was. He was sure, a cigar yeah, guy. A yeah. Yeah. yeah, and never paid the check. My dad always paid the check. That's why my dad was always broke.
6: One of the reasons why we're not talking about the movie as much as <laughs> normal is because there's not a lot of stuff here. I mean, really when I was watching it, it felt like maybe a 15 minute skit that they stretched out to what? 75 minutes.
0: Ding, ding, ding. <laughs>
6: yeah. I mean, there's a couple music breaks as are to be expected and Duke has a very good voice. I have to say he does a great job with those and the too soon to know is pretty good. He even gets to sing it again as a gorilla, which is fantastic. <laughs> But as the title says, they meet Bella Lugosi, or I guess it goes both ways, and he turns Duke into a gorilla so that he won't woo the island girl when Duke was the gorilla and there's the other gorilla that comes to him. I thought that that other gorilla was going to be like Salima and like not leave him alone, but I guess it was a male gorilla. I'm not sure what was going on with that, with the two gorillas there.
2: I remember when Jamie and I were writing those pilots for for Maurice and we would turn in the scripts and he goes, uh, this scene, where's the funnies? Where the fuck is the funnies? We need the funnies here. You know, that was and his, that was uh, his it's like,
4: uh, that know? was his note. The, 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 the joke, the joke was I, when, when they,
3: they did the Atomic Kid, Maurice pitched it as one guy's radioactive and the other one isn't. Because I'm
0: not sure my dad ever really liked to read the whole script.
3: <laughs> one's radioactive, the other is, it's a match made in Los
2: Alamos at a theater near you. Sometimes he would, in telling a story, Maurice would say, he would either forget a name or if he was pitching us an idea, he would come up with another phrase. He goes, you know, uh, Snoopy Poopy. Uh, have Snoopy Poopy come in. And he would use this phrase, Snoopy Poopy, a lot. And then Jamie said, "I'm Jamie goes, Oh, of the Baltimore Snoopy Poopies. It's Baltimore of, Poopies. We got a, a newspaper headline and we faked we faked um, a, a headline and said, Snoopy Poopy signs three pick pack or something. And we gave it to him as a joke for variety
3: or something. <laughs> Cut in love triangle. Silly.
0: My husband wrote a script about my father right after he died, but didn't tell me he was writing the Maurice Duke movie. And he handed it to me and he got down all of those wacky when my dad couldn't come up with words and made up words. He got it all without being around him that much. He was around him for about six years. And it's such a good script that nobody's made.
2: (laughs) I've read that script. Uh, Was it called? Uh, The Money in You?
0: Plenty of Money in You. John Landis just took an interest in it.
2: But wasn't Danny DeVito going to play your dad, right?
0: He actually turned it down because he had because he had played a producer.
2: I, it's a terrific script. Michael and Jim wrote a great script. It's
0: really good. He's actually more of an authority on my father than I am. I've had him write me some cheat sheets here. Like seriously, he knows more about the making of Bella Lugosi meets a gorilla. You know, he gave Leonard Malton the seasoned assist letters that night ahead of. He went, you might you might be interested in this. And he wrote a whole thing to Leonard. Um, he really is, you know, the son-in-law of Maurice Duke and the authority on, on him.
2: Wait a second. Is he is he down the hall filming his special? Why can't we bring in Michael? <laughs> like, Tell me if you guys want him. I'll I'll grab him. five minutes with Michael. Absolutely. If he knows more than we do, I'm fine. <laughs> we're doing we're doing Marie spits because Freddie was saying that you have the cease and desist letters and, and you know a lot more about the, the movie than
4: anyone should. <laughs> we do have copies of, of that, That how Wallace and um, Paramount Pictures tried to get Maurice Duke and uh, real art pictures to um, to restrain from releasing the picture. Duke saw this as a great opportunity because he thought uh, he could make more by burning the negative than actually releasing the movie. They threatened Mitchell and Petrillo with taking their intellectual property if you can if you can imagine jerry lewis 's act as being somebody 's intellectual property. I think the scheme uh, in which Duke was trying to hold them up for money was blown when uh, uh, Broder, the head of uh, Real art pictures screened the picture for uh, Hal Wallace and Jerry Lewis, unbeknownst to Maurice Duke, and um, they realized they had nothing to fear from
3: it. All it takes is a few frames.
2: It almost sounds like a, a real life Bialy Stock and Bloom plot.
4: Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, he was hoping that he could cash in on burning the film, and uh, it was only because it was screened in advance that he actually had to release it. I love it. Let's make a movie, and my goal is to have it destroyed. His attitude was, why should Martin and Lewis be the only ones who could make a Martin and Lewis movie? <laughs> 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 So he, made, he put together his own Martin and Lewis, you know, and uh, the rest is uh, cinematic history.
2: Michael, maybe, I'd love to know this. I know that Maurice managed Duke and Sammy, but Were they already a team by the time he saw them in a nightclub? You know, I don't
4: know all the details. I think he put them together, though.
0: How Um, do you find uh, Duke and Sammy? Yeah,
4: I don't think they were working together already.
0: I think he did put them together. So they were kind of doing it as a little bit of a comedy act on, you know, sort of. I'm not sure Duke Mitchell loved it. Sammy
4: Petrillo had a history of uh, doing Jerry Lewis. He did it on the Burl Show. And he did it later uh, on the Colgate Comedy Hour for Martin and Lewis, where he played, um, I think, Jerry's little brother or something. And he was like 16 years old, and he was almost a clone for Lewis's act. I mean, he had, you know, it it was paint by numbers, but he knew it all, and the inflections and everything. And so Duke had this kid who was the basis of the mock Martin and Lewis, and he knew he needed a sort of handsome singer to put with him and he found uh duke mitchell and um that was mitchell and petrillo
6: so the film did get released did it have much of a release
4: it did have a release and you know the whole budget of the film was fifty thousand dollars so it didn't mean that much of a release it was released and uh you know i don't know if he made any money on it it's probably doubtful. my dad
0: thought that people would assume they were really seeing a Lewis and Martin movie because he thought they did such a a good impression that he thought there'd be lines around the block. People would think they were seeing them, but he was wrong.
3: (laughs) That's an understatement.
4: That was actually Jerry Lewis's fear. He knew he had not much of an act. I mean, personality, Jerry Lewis, but he didn't really have an act you could transcribe. And so when another guy came along who could also do Jerry Lewis... Lewis was uh, unnerved by this, and that's why the lawsuit came about.
2: But after the movie, even if it didn't have much of a release, I'm sure Maurice continued to book him in nightclubs and stuff, right? Like in Vegas and things? Yeah,
0: but I, don't, I really don't think Duke Mitchell was into it at all.
4: I remember uh, uh, seeing uh, that movie on Million Dollar Movie, which was a, um, a local TV show, Channel 9, WRTV in New York, a million dollar movie, and they would show the same movie four times a day all week. That movie was one of them, and I remember the first time I tuned in in the middle of that movie, and I thought, "Wait, that's a Jerry Lewis movie," and I was a huge fan of Jerry Lewis. And about five minutes into it, I realized that's not Lewis.
3: A yeah, million dollar movie they could they couldn't have they couldn't <laughs> have had something uh, that said fifty thousand dollar movie. They that that would not have
2: been a big audience for that one. But in looking up the director, William Bodine, like 500 credits, it said that he directed half of the Bowery Boy movies. So I was wondering if
0: my dad, yeah.
2: Yeah. So I was wondering if that's how Maurice knew and brought Bodine in.
0: Probably. That sounds right.
2: I have to hear the Hans Hall story.
0: You mean because my dad managed Hans and kept saying to Burl, please put Hans on the show. You tell that story. I'll tell tell
3: the story. So, Hunts Hall is uh, looking for work, and he comes into Duke's office, and he goes, hey, you know, and Hunts Hall was the rubbery-faced Bowery boy. Uh, he was the sash to uh, to the other guy, Leo Gorson. So, he, he comes into Duke's office, as they did in those days, and said, look, you got to book me. I need work. I haven't done Bowery Boys in a while. There's this new show, this Milton Burrell thing. There's this TV, which I'd love to get a shot on. Maurice said, look, I talked to Burl. He said he can't use you. And it was, uh, you know, I, I I talked to him a couple times, and he he can't do it. So just then, in walks Burl. And he goes, hey, if you know, Hunts Hall, you know, you like his work. Come on, give him a job. And he goes, hey, I, I, I do. I'm a big fan of yours, Hunts, but I, I really can't use you on the show. And Duke says, all right, look, I hear you got a pretty big cock. and' Burl goes, well, you know, you heard right. And Duke says, you know, Hunts here, he's pretty good too. Why don't the two of you guys drop your pants? If Hunts is bigger than you, you give him two weeks on the show. Go, okay, all right. So Hunts Hall and Milton. But Hunts and is you- shaking. <laughs> Hunts Hall and, and, and Milton Burl drop Trow in Maurice's office, right? So Maurice takes his cane and he takes the tip off of his cane, the rubber tip off of his cane. And he goes, all right, you want me to measure from the balls or from the asshole? And I, gave, I gave Hunt another little, a little half inch. He did two weeks on the show.
2: My memory is that Hunts was terrified. Put his uh, his uh, essence of hunts onto the table was so dramatically shorter than Milton. And Maurice reached across the table Grab Hunt by the schlong and yanked him across the table. I don't remember table. that at all.
0: <laughs> wow.
3: That
2: That's I heard
0: I the- heard like, that Burl used to say, Do you want me to take out just yeah, enough? Yeah, take out just to enough win? to win, yes. Right. I've heard that. That one too.
2: <laughs> that he yanked him across the table and then Burl was laughing
3: so hard. So it, it completely changed. Every time I see the Bowery Boys now, it completely changed Hunt's Hall for me.
6: So really, there isn't much of a conclusion to this film as far as does he ever come back from being a gorilla I think it's no no it's it's Sammy basically it all takes place back at the village and we've got Sammy and Duke who is now still a gorilla and then Bella Lugosi and his henchmen show up and then Bella surprisingly shoots Sammy and I was like where <laughs> is this movie going <laughs> <laughs> how will they get out of this thing, and how will they get back to being those bearded tuxedo guys from the beginning? I want this to happen, but it's no a
3: dream wasn't it? was it. It was that? just a dream. Of course, it was, and and it took Duke forever to wake Sammy up. <laughs> Next time you see the movie, why it's it's like a minute of him: wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. <laughs>
6: what's going on and then it becomes the wizard of oz for a while and it's just like i just had the weirdest dream and you were there and you were there exactly
0: (laughs) my dad wasn't sometimes very original
6: (laughs) and at least we get to see a little bit of their nightclub act though i was hoping for like another 10 minutes just to see what these guys were like when they're not stuck in the the jungle
2: but wait a second your dad was original in his theft as michael so eloquently said duke said Wait, there's a Martin and Lewis. Why can't there be another Martin and Lewis? All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and take a
6: break. and We're going to play an interview with Gary Rhodes, the co-author of the two-book set Becoming Dracula, The Early Days of Bella Lugosi. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages.
1: Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons?
2: There's got to be a better way.
1: Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring
3: sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image?
1: Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast.
2: Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are
0: standing by.
5: Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rhodes jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. Plam, the door opens, it's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline
2: to me. I'm literally back against the wall.
5: Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Ackbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe that war is something to be proud of but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films.
4: The thing that I learned from working with the Palmen
2: is that tension depends on o'clock. You need to have the sense that time is running
5: out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049.
0: Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration.
5: That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning.
6: You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good spirited way while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider, now available on your favorite podcast app or at TheHollywoodOutsider.com.
4: This is Adam Spiegelman from the cult movie podcast, Proudly Resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast the projection booth. I know. It's messed up, right?
6: Can you tell me a little bit more about kind of how you got your start in film scholarship?
7: I suppose my love of film scholarship began when I was a little kid. It was still the period when there were really free networks and PBS. By the time I was 10 or 12, everybody started getting VHS players in the home. But Before that, it was still the three networks. And that meant that, you know, a lot of us were still seeing the same thing. Even if we were young, we were seeing old black and white films from 30, 40, 50 years earlier. And so I grew up with a love, a love my parents had of of classical Hollywood movies. And so that started when I was very young. I suppose the first film book I remember was one I absconded from my sister. She had bought it. It was a little paperback for children of classic movie monsters. And that became another love of mine, reading about the films. And even in that pre-video, home video period, staring at still photographs of movies I was longing to see, some of which I didn't get to see for several more years, films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu, the German Expressionist films of the 1920s, for example. And so... So my, those were my early earliest you know, uh, encounters with film history and film scholarship.
6: And how did you turn that love into what you do today?
7: By the time I was getting a little older, 10, 11, 12, I was buying some, some very intelligent but very accessible books by, by some of the early film historians, relatively early film historians at least, like William K. Everson. And Carlos Clarence. And so I, I was really loving what they were doing. So by the time I was 12, I really knew. And, and by that time, also had a video player and was able to access so much more, including silent films. I knew that by, by the age of 12, I wanted to be a film historian. I knew I wanted to write books like they were writing. I knew that I also was very interested in documentary films about film history. Because though I didn't know him for many years thereafter, and he's a good friend of mine, Kevin Brownlow, was one of the great, not only film historians, but documentary filmmakers, where he was making films about people like, for example, Charlie Chaplin, the last, the first one of his documentaries I saw on PBS. And, and of course, that those kinds of documentaries really made things come alive because you saw the people being interviewed there were still lots of the early folks living and could be interviewed, but also unlike books and their photographs, what was so exciting to me about work like his was that if he was mentioning a particular scene in a film, you actually saw it rather than simply reading about it because there's a limitation of what when we're writing about a scene, you know, text can only go so far in capturing visual or audio visual of a film. So so that was, by, by that time, I knew I was I was deeply interested in the area. And a very lucky thing happened to me when I was 13. I was already well aware of some of these writers, and I was well aware of one named Forrest Ackerman, Forrest J. Ackerman. And I knew him through his magazine, which was aimed at children, and I was one, Famous Monsters of Filmland. I also knew through the magazine and some of his television appearances, as an interviewee, I knew what he looked like. And the, the, the most wonderfully fortuitous moment of my life probably happened, certainly my film life. We were in Tulsa, Oklahoma, my family and I. My dad was off to some business. We were waiting for him in the lobby. This was before cell phones or anything. It was 1985. And all of a sudden, a gentleman walks past wearing a leisure suit, as Corey always did. And he goes to the elevators. And I say to my mother and sister, that was Forrest Ackerman. And their first response was, who is Forrest Ackerman? And the second response would be, what, what would he be doing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at a Double Tree Hotel? And I was a shy kid, but I mustered all of my confidence and everything. I went to the counter, the talked to the clerk, and said, as if I knew him, could you please connect me to Forrest Ackerman? Room again were pre cell phones, so I was on the desk phone, and he picked up. It really, he it really was him, and he told his wife. This was something he joked about for many years thereafter, because we became very good friends. But he joked with his wife, unbeknownst to me, where he told his wife, "Well, I'm going downstairs to meet a fan of my work. I'll be back in five or 10, 15 minutes." Well, he and I ended up speaking about three hours that night. And though it was 1985, my dad actually, of all yet other wonderful little things, he had a uh, video camera in the car. And so dad even ended up filming about an hour of this impromptu meeting between me and Ackerman, me asking him all kinds of questions and him so wonderfully and politely talking to, you know, a 13-year-old kid. Well, by the time he got back to Los Angeles, we were... Uh, Talking a bit on the phone, within a couple of months, he invited me to a, a big event at the Los Angeles Biltmore Hotel. I had just turned fourteen, and was all of a sudden, thanks to him, meeting people like uh, Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen and Kurt Siodmak, who had written the original Wolfman film in 1941, and and I was meeting all of these wonderful people thanks to him. And our friendship continued to grow, and he became my first agent, and he. He aged in my first paid work as a film historian. I was 16, and it was for a magazine that, of all things, I still write for, even though I'm 49 now, and that's a magazine called Film Facts. It's spelled with an X on the cover, Film Facts, and uh, I wrote for them for the first time. I guess it was 87 or so, thanks to him. So that is the long version, apologies, but that is how... I guess, I came to be. It was a few lucky things.
6: How did you get interested in writing so much about Bella Lugosi?
7: I think it was similar to the fact, of the fact that I was able to recognize Corey Ackerman in Tulsa that day, meaning that I loved horror films most of all. I loved all old movies, and I loved the current movies. I mean, I was... Uh, five years old saying Star Wars in the theater. And so I was as equally interested in modern films or what were then modern films of the late seventies and eighties, as I was the old movies, but my favorite of all, I loved all the genres, all of the periods, but my favorite of all were horror films. Even as a little kid, seeing a handful of them on shock theater on TV, my mother loved them when she was a kid. And so I got some of that love from her us watching them together. And I guess so many little kids, you know, have a fascination with ghost stories around the campfire or all aspects of horror and, and, and all things grisly and ghostly. And, uh, and so I did too. And, and Lugosi was, of course, Dracula. I think uh, he, he really re-inscribed that Bram Stoker character. So, so completely with his looks and appearance and costume, very different in many respects, certainly from the novel of 1897. And so, so Legosi, it's extremely cliched to say it, but many cliches, it's very true. Lugosi, it's a two way street. Everything from I mean, there was a, a, a Kit Kat commercial last Halloween 2020. I remember that had the vampire coming out of a coffin that was basically enormous Twix, or not Twix, Kit Kat, Candy, and he was dressed and trying to imitate and sound like Bela Lugosi in the year 2020, and 90 years after, 90, you know, 80, 90 years after the Lugosi film came out. and And sometimes we don't even know. I think particularly modern people don't even know that the Dracula they know is Lugosi. His name in some quarters is forgotten. He's been dead since 1956. But that, that presence, that sound, his voice, the looks, he, he really did reinscribe Dracula from what Stoker described in the novel to what we still think of to the present day. And so I guess in the same way it's gripped popular culture for, for decades including in things like uh, The Count on Sesame Street, Count Chocula's cereal, which is still made, and so forth. I, you know, all of that gripped me, too. It's just it never let me go, I suppose.
6: It must have been fairly difficult to write about the ghosty, especially in the era before the Internet and some of the scholarship that's already been done on him or that would be done eventually because you were kind of breaking new ground by writing a lot about him.
7: I suppose by the time I was 13, 14, even before I met coincidentally that day, Forrest Ackerman, I was already trying to write to some authors, some film historians, and a a wonderful teacher told me a great trick of that time, which is, uh, and this of course again, long pre-internet and the days when long distance was quite expensive, frankly, and but but a teacher told me, you know, if you just write to the author in care of the publisher, because you can always get a publisher's address, write to them. And I did. And I and two of them wrote back. And they had both written books about Bela Lugosi by that time. And they both became very good friends of mine. One, one was named Richard Majarski. He wrote a book that was published in 1980 called The Films of Bela Lugosi. The other was Robert Kramer, who wrote a book called Lugosi, The Man Behind the Cape. And I remember the first time I asked for that book, I had read about it in Famous Monsters. I asked at at the library for it. Librarian was very sweet. She was convinced I was talking about the man behind the mask. And I had to keep saying, no, 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 this really is the man behind the cape. And so my first experience with interlibrary loan, which I still use to access research and archival materials now, my first experience with it was getting Kramer's book, The Interlibrary Loan. It was out of print by the time I was looking for it. I had gotten Bajarski's book. They were delightful. They were the type of writers, scholars who loved that somebody else was interested rather than being immediately suspicious or jealous, which, alas, happens so often in so many careers. But they were wonderful. And so they both started giving me Addresses of a lot of the old actors, directors, writers who had worked on Lugosi's films, as well as some of the other old horror films. We're talking films of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and this was the 1980s, the mid to late 1980s. And so I was very fortunate they not only helped me with that, but also put me on to yet other clues of the time. For example, if you want to contact a director, an old film director, you believe they're still living, write them in care of the Directors Guild, and it will probably be passed on to them, to their home address. And so I did that with all the stamps I could muster. And by 1987, I was even publishing a newsletter on Lugosi, and it had the fruits of some of my first research, like I was interviewing people like Arthur Lubin and Carol Borland and And Robert Wise and a lot of these people who were, you know, affiliated with Lugosi films as well as other films. And I was also getting other writers to write for it. You know, we had had a a submission, thankfully, from Robert Block, who had decades earlier written the novel that Psycho was based on. And contributions from some of the people like Ackerman, like uh, Richard Sheffield, who had been a close friend of Lugosi's. Some of the other actors, Carol Borland had written one piece for, uh, she was in a film with Lugosi called Mark of the Vampire, playing the uh, vampire girl in the film. So I was I was fortunate. That kind of got me off and running. And so what I was trying to do, and I, I didn't realize that this was how trained scholars and trained historians are supposed to work. Uh, if, if they're not being overly jealous or petty or whatever, at least but that is to say you 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 do know what's been the work that's been done before, and you try to meaningfully add to it rather than just plagiarize, for example, appropriate from what's been done before. So I was that's what I was trying to do, and I was getting some great help from several of these people, including Ackerman, who was based in L.A. knew a lot of these people, and so that was uh, that was kind of me off and running, trying to do what I would still try to do with all of my scholarship, because I write about quite a bit most of my time, other things than Legosi, but to build on work of the past, you know, bring to light forgotten information, facts, data, whatever, you know, that's that's been my approach, and I was very fortunate, again, that some of these, I fell into the lucky situation, great people who were wanting to help, rather than, frankly, some, as they do exist, who don't want to be helpful. you know. So I was very fortunate.
6: When it comes to Lugosi, he had such an interesting career. I mean, even before he was Dracula on screen, he was such a well-known stage actor. I'm very curious as far as like, how do you, in your own work, how do you kind of split apart his career? Are there certain milestones for you when you look at where he was at, at certain times in his life?
7: It's been something I've, I've not only thought about in terms of Kind of periodization, you know, the different eras of his life, and, and I guess we sometimes think about this even in our own lives, you know, markers of importance, you know, high school graduation, or so forth. For for me, it's actually guided my own uh, research and even the way I've tried to present it in bulk form, which is to say, you know, I've written a number of books on see sometimes with my wonderful co-author Bill kaffenberger and we have. As you get in-depth in a subject, you know, sometimes one book isn't enough to tell a story. And, of course, we're talking about, and you're alluding to it very importantly, a man who who really achieved some degree of fame in three different countries, which is quite an accomplishment. I mean, he did in Hungary, and he had to literally leave Hungary for political reasons that, that we have time we can discuss, but he literally had to leave Hungary. It wasn't by choice. And he had become a a stage as well as film star in Hungary. And then his first major port of call, he goes to Vienna, but his first major port of call afterwards was Berlin, Germany. And he was there really at the time. He was actually there for the release of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and some of the other German expressionist films, The Golem, the 1920 version. And he makes a real presence. He didn't become a major star, but he he achieved some degree of success in German films. And then he decides, a decision perhaps he had made even before Berlin, but he decides to go to America, and he becomes yet again notable, and in more than one way. uh, He starts out becoming notable, building on his earlier fame of Hungary with the Hungarian-American community in New York in the early 20s, and teaching himself to learn English, also with the help of some other people, of course, he moves into English-speaking stage, Broadway, and then, of course, sound, Hollywood films. So, so his life really is, you know, all of our lives are episodic in some ways, you know, from 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 our, you know, even if we think of grammar school the middle school to high school, you know, there, there's various episodes in our, all of our lives. But his was really marked by episodes that uh, had, that involved major change. And so... So, so I, do, I do see those kinds of periods in his life. And, and I think some of that appears in the way I, and sometimes with again my co author Bill Kaffenberg, who's very and such an important uh, colleague and co author, we do it sometimes in the way we present books. For example, shortly after this interview, in the next 10 days, the next or so, the next Lugosi book of ours will be published. And it's part of a two volume set called Becoming Dracula, the early years of Bela Lugosi. And although that is even somewhat precise, imprecise, because it covers his birth to October, excuse me, September of 1930, when he signs the contract to play Dracula at Universal Pictures, which of course becomes the famous first sound version of Dracula, and one that is even going to be back in theaters in October, at least for one day, in theaters, including in Oklahoma City. So so that would be one period, but I think the, you can subdivide it into Hungary, Germany, and then even his trek in America towards success, marked by, you know, the immigrant culture, the Hungarian language theater in America into sound silent films where the language barrier was not as much of a problem, of course, if you didn't speak the language, even if you were it was made in a country where you did or didn't know the language well, you could still appear in silent films, but then on to success, English speaking theater, English speaking films. Some of the other books I, I find the making of Dracula so important that I devoted an entire book to it called Todd Browning's Dracula, Browning being the director of the film. And it's the making and distribution of the film. I've written a book on one of my other favorite of Lugosi films called White Zombie, which was a 1932 movie, the first feature length zombie film in film history. So those are kind of periods that really focus kind of razor sharp on the making and distribution of given films, specific individual films. Some of my other books, though, one of my books, I think a lot of people that do know Lugosi might know him through Tim Burton's movie, Ed Wood, uh, 19, now that's already now in the past. It was a 1994 film with uh, with uh, Lugosi as one of the, as played by Martin Landau for part of that film story. I, I wrote one book on Lugosi's last years, and it was that Ed Wood period that became of such interest because of Ed Wood's own Cult following, Lugosi's troubles and travails late in life, including a very public drug addiction. That book uh, covers his last five years or so, and is called Bela Lugosi, Dreams and Nightmares. A couple of other periods, very quickly I'll mention, I wrote one book with Bill Kaffenberger called No Traveler Returns, and it was the period of Lugosi's life right after World War II, the film roles generally dried up on him. Things weren't great, but they weren't as bad as those fine lead wood years. We're talking here about the late forties, and he began to do whatever he could to make good living, and that meant a lot of vaudeville appearances, live appearances across America. Summer stock, you know, where a major actor appears with local actors, paid good, but not necessarily the most prestigious of work. He even had a spook show for a while, you know, where you come late at night. He maybe even, you know, the kind of if not actually midnight, very late, Lugosi live on stage with some magic and horror tricks, as well as one of his films on the screen. So that book, No Traveler Returns, covered that that period of the late 40s. And so so there's various ways we tried to periodize his life. And those would be, you know, kind of among them, because I guess with, whether on my own or with co-authors like Bill Kappenberger, I've probably done, you know, depending upon how you count them, seven or eight or nine books on it. I, I say that last bit because a couple of the books are on individual films, not specifically about him, though he was the star of it.
6: where does Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla fit in?
7: It fits into this period that really becomes the I don't know, there's many beginnings of the end with his Hollywood decline, but I think Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, which was a film of 1952, that really, I think, I think the beginning of the end, that's part of it. And you could say, oh, well, it's a film. And it did get pretty good distribution. In fact, it's an interesting film in that, in the same way at the moment we're talking in film history, there's major concerns about brand new movies being released to streaming companies at the same time or very close to the same time they're in movie theaters, Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla was actually shown on TV while it was still being, while it was still playing movie theaters. And that caused a real uproar amongst the unions because that wasn't supposed to happen if you were a Screen Actors Guild member and so forth. So it's a curious film in some respects and it's worth well worth talking about. If the listeners haven't seen it, it's not only is it readily available on YouTube, but it's, curious because it has this comedy team in it i knew one of the two members of the comedy team and they were not just trying to be similar to dean martin and jerry lewis who were so huge at the time but one of them particularly is doing jerry lewis to a point that some people have actually seen the film or at least glanced at it in passing and assumed it was jerry lewis and that caused another uproar but it's a, fascinating, it's a fascinating little film. It has his name in the title again. And so, you know, you could say, okay, well, he's making a movie, and his name's even in the title. But, but nevertheless, 1951-52 really marks the, uh, the, the beginning of the end of Lugosi's career. He had gone to England to do an ill-fated stage production of Dracula, you know, live. It did extremely badly. He got back to New York City, and there's actually a letter I found of his where he says to enough, he, he got an offer to do Dracula in Australia. He's back on American soil. He says in the letter, I don't ever want to go through an experience like that again, meaning being trapped in another country uh, with little money, a doom show, and so forth. And he, did, he comes back to America. And a lot of the things I was alluding to earlier, like the summer stock and the spook shows, Not particularly prestigious work, but it paid well and it was fairly steady. All of that kind of dried up after he was gone those months for the uh, British stage tour. He comes back, he does Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla that you've asked about, which is fascinating in its own way, including arguably for being a a bad movie. Some people, of course, have that kind of so-bad-it's-good attraction to some of the films we're talking about. After that, though, things really begin to fall apart. You know, by 1953, he, he the year after Brooklyn Gorilla, he's you know uh, in Glenda. He gets divorced. The work continues to dry up, and and then the drugs become known, and, and his death and everything. So so when I wrote that book on his last years, 1952 is actually the year I start, which is the year you're asking about in relation to that film, able to go see me some I made a documentary film about Lugosi and it's on DVD. You can also find it at Vimeo, to watch for free. It's called Lugosi, Hollywood's Dracula. Vimeo being a kind of a similar to YouTube, you know, so, and uh, so I actually filmed Sammy for that. He was a very nice man. He had been dogged. He and uh, his partner by Jerry Lewis and, and their producer at that time, because they thought it went beyond mere, oh, what, mere appropriation or homage, I like that word, of course, very well. They thought it went well beyond that to, to something more akin to, to dirtier words like plagiarism, because it was such a, in their eyes, a complete ripoff of Jerry's, you know, persona. And so, so, so Petrillo was, you know, he was not maybe in great shape at the end. His career hadn't gone as well as he wanted. And Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla may have been the peak of his career. And as I was saying, it was starting to be the beginning of the end for Lugosi. So if that's your peak as it was for Petrillo, that's, you know, not great. He ended up in some other exploitation films and doing some live comedy acts, you know, nightclubs and so forth. but, but, didn't end up well off. He was living in Yonkers, New York, when I filmed him in the mid-90s, probably 1996. But he was a very gracious man. He was very polite and nice. He cheered up speaking about Lugosi. You know, I think, I think one of two things generally happened when people like Petrillo worked with Lugosi. Sometimes Lugosi kept very much to himself. You know, he would stay in his dressing room or whatever. He, his, most of his friends weren't Hollywood people ever. They were fellow Hungarians in Los Angeles or wherever he was living, New York City, etc. Nevertheless, though, though he tended to stay by himself, he, he there's so many people. He was also very friendly, gracious, kind. And so, so half of the people I ever interviewed about Lugosi talk about him being, well, I really didn't get to know him. He stayed by, off by himself. They didn't think that he was being arrogant in that way. They just knew he, you know, he, was, he was not mixing a lot. With some of the cast always. But some of the others, like Petrillo, they 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 remembered him extremely fondly because they thought that he treated them so very well. And especially on some of those low budget pictures, you know, because these were people whose careers, in some cases, were never really that great of careers, frankly. And so Petrillo teared up several times. In fact, you see some of that in the documentary, I mean. So he he liked some of the Ed Wood uh, players would also do, Lugosi had a profound effect on some of those people working with him.
6: That documentary is probably the first time where I actually ran across you and your name. And I don't want to change the subject too much, but I'm so curious about some of the mockumentaries that you've made over the years as well.
7: I continue to be interested in in mockumentaries. I was watching just yesterday, one of arguably, and I always want to say arguably, because there's always interesting debates in film history and, conversations to be had. But well, arguably one of the first mockumentaries I was watching yesterday called the Hellstrom Chronicle from the early 70s, in which a fellow talks to the screen in documentary fashion. He's telling us about all of the problems insects will probably cause humankind. They're better suited to live even after nuclear holocaust or so forth. And then, of course, at the end of the film, even though he's been credited at the beginning with the, with the name Niles Hilstrom, and a PhD after his name and so forth. By the end of the film, we it's revealed that he's just an actor, and we've been a bit had. And so I'm very much interested in mockumentary film. In fact, uh, with a colleague named John Springer, I think I did what was the second book on the subject of mockumentary. In some ways, it's a fascinating subject that, that you ask about, because while, while the 70s to the present have really seen the proliferation of, it. you might think of films like The Blair Witch Project or so forth, you know, Best in Show, This is Spinal Tap, you know, both comedy and horror. This kind of faking, allegedly nonfiction footage certainly goes back to the 1890s, say some of the footage of the Spanish-American War. The Boer War. I mean, these things were faked completely, and in some cases, very obviously, as we watch them now, you know, miniature ships being passed off as, as 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 actual battleships. So, so in some ways, this kind of subject, I think, it's particularly fascinating because it it's one that's been around since the beginnings of film. You know, my last example there is is I like to show my students. Sometimes I teach film always at universities in film history. And I love to show them from the 1890s, one of the first films. It's called, known as Blacksmithing Scene. It was made by Thomas Edison's company. It's only seconds in length. You can watch it on YouTube if you wish. It's a few men around the device where they're hammering and doing the work as blacksmiths. Then they pass a beer around quickly to all three of them. But in reality, they weren't blacksmiths. The workers at Edison Studios. So even that extremely early film blacksmithing scene, arguably, it is a mockumentary uh, or, or some word mockumentary, of course, coming, you know, a century later, but it's, they weren't really blacksmiths. And so that's my point. And uh, so I think it's a wonderful subject.
6: Are you a fan of the works of Colin McKenzie?
7: Yes, I am. I am. I think I think there's so many wonderful people uh, working and working in some of these areas. And, and, you know, there's a lot of them uh, we could name. When I was at the University of Central Florida, where I taught uh, as an associate professor for a few years, we had a 20th anniversary reunion of the uh, team that made the Blair Witch Project, which which I think was such a groundbreaking example of what we're talking about, including in its marketing, you know, when it originally came out in 99, I was teaching at another university, and I remember a few students really believed, no, no, man, it's really real. And I was trying to tell them, no, no, this has been playing film festivals for many months prior to its major theatrical release. But they they believed the early internet hype, which, of course, was what the film wanted people to do, at least to a degree. So Christopher Guest, you know, there's a lot of wonderful people working in some of these areas. And I, I love it. As a project for a lot of students, because mockumentary films, obviously, what they're mocking, well, they may be mocking many things, but one of the things they're mocking or appropriating, or I love your earlier word, homage, you know, is documentary film. And in particular, the kind of handheld documentary style, verite, we sometimes call it, where, you know, you walk around with the camera operator and a sound person and film something that's happening, you know, the everyday life of them. Person or some event, you know, there's such famous examples of this kind of film, you know, don't look back about Bob Dylan, you know, the Pennebaker film or, you know, the Mazel's brothers with their films like Salesman and Gimme Shelter and at the uh, Altamont Rolling Stones concert, you know, where someone was killed. And, and uh, so that's what's being appropriated. Well, why I love this form and why I love it for students is that you can make them on very, very low budgets. Because by appropriating that type of documentary style, it doesn't matter if the lighting is natural, imperfect lighting. Documentaries would have the same. If the microphone boom occasionally comes in to the frame, this is all part of the veneer, the handheld camera, you know, which allows you to shoot much quicker. And time is always money in any kind of filmmaking. And so I, I love the style. And I think, I think, yeah, I think it's a wonderful style for a lot of students to... Approach because they so often want to make fictional films, which we all love. Certainly, I love, but it, but it's it's obviously difficult to pull off a realistic fictional film on an extremely low budget. Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla helps prove that point. I think to allude to the earlier film and and some documentaries, people expect that kind of rough edge as part of the style, and so I think it's it's a wonderful topic area. So glad you brought it up.
6: You mentioned something earlier that just has me really curious as far as why Lugosi had to end up leaving Hungary for political reasons.
7: Yes, yes. Well, that's a, that's a wonderfully horrible story. Wonderful as an interesting thing to research and read about. Terrible, certainly for, for, for him, because it did mean a lot of bad things for Lugosi. What happened, and it's difficult to know exactly, it seems like it was happening really in the late 1890s before he even got into theater. He certainly was, was working in various trades, the railroad business, mining. And I start there by way of saying he became interested certainly in the plight of the underpaid, the underprivileged workers, because he was one, and he saw unionization and what unions might be able to do to help people in Hungary at that time. He seems to become interested in unions for actors by 1905, 1906. He becomes more interested as time goes on. And that goes hand in hand with him becoming a more notable actor in Hungary in Budapest specifically. And uh, he certainly has a love of his homeland. We know for a lot of reasons. Look, I I lived outside of America for nearly fourteen years in Ireland, and even living in a wonderful place like Ireland, which I dearly love and miss and have so many great friends, it's never a walk in the park if you leave your own country. And and you know so you know home is home. Home is home. Home is where the heart is. Even if home is sometimes has bad things about it too. You know and. So he loved Hungary and he clearly loves the Hungarian people enough that he enlists before he's not drafted. He enlists to fight in World War I and is injured. In fact, there seems to be indications he was injured more than once before he's released back to private life. So he's 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 got some sense of patriotism, but he seems also skeptical of the ruling classes of the uh, what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire which really kind of falls apart with the end of World War One, and But but at any rate, he gets back from the war. He becomes more and more involved in unionization efforts. His interest in such matters grows. The Austro-Hungarian Empire does fall apart, and Lugosi is there when it does. And he's there through two very short-lived regimes and the first was led by a man who was very much had communist tendencies, even though he was born of aristocracy. And in English, we would call him Michael Karalyi. And he knows Karalyi. He has loose affiliation with Karalyi's government, which wants to take land from rich landowners and give to poor farmers and allotments, that kind of thing. Karalyi loses power very quickly to a much more hard left communist named Bela Kuhn. And Lugosi serves directly in Kuhn's government. He becomes a secretary, not as we might think in clerical matters, like a typist, but something closer to secretary of defense or interior, et cetera, as we think of it politically in America. He becomes enmeshed in, in completely unionizing, communizing Hungarian theater and film, so much so that he takes leave from the national theater to do this. And, But the Kuhn government is quickly overthrown by an extreme right-wing government, led by somebody who will remain in power for many years, including during World War II. When Kuhn's government, the communist government, loses power, well, people affiliated with it are subject to imprisonment or death. And that was no joke. I mean, Bill Kaffenberger and I have spent much time in Hungary doing research. And finding documents, everything from political documents that Lagosi assigned to to manifesto speeches he gave to some of the things, unfortunately, that did happen to, to some of the people who were imprisoned by what became kind of known as the white terror. You know, anybody affiliated with this brief government of Coons, when it fell in 1919, you know, they were badly treated or much worse, let's say. And Lugosi fled to uh, Vienna. was the first major city outside of Hungary to get to. It was a place that he would have known some people, even if he had, we knew he traveled there at least once before the moment I'm talking about, but he travels there knowing that a lot of people working in the Vienna film studios were Hungarians and vice versa, that there had been a lot of movement back and forth because of the geographical proximity. A lot of people in Hungary, particularly in Budapest, as well as Lugosi was born in a smaller town, but it had a large German population. A lot of people, a lot of Hungarians at that time in Budapest and others like Lugosi spoke some German, if not even a great deal of German fluently. Lugosi goes to Vienna with his first wife. He's madly in love with her. We know this for a lot of reasons I can talk about, but we know he's madly in love with her and remains so for many years that follows and those years follow without her because in Vienna, she ends up going back to Budapest. Lugosi goes on to Germany without her. And it's actually when he's waiting to leave by ship for America that the divorce paperwork is finally completely settled. And so political reasons, for very real, serious political reasons, cause him to leave Hungary. He, he obviously had mixed feelings about that, including foremost, most, I would argue, the the dissolution of his first marriage.
6: By the time this comes out, your new book will have already dropped. And I'm very curious if you can tell me a little bit more about that and what the inspiration was for that. And, and again, that time period that it covers.
7: Well, the, I think the inspiration was, you know, there were a lot of reasons that limited research had been done on Lugosi in Hungary and Germany. The Hungarian part, which comprises his life really from basically we're talking 1882 when he's born through through part of 1919. So, you know, we're not talking about a small period of time. We're talking about a, you know a person in, in his mid to late 30s by the time he leaves. Hungary remains. There was yet another revolution, around, you know, around, shortly after Lugosi's death in 1956 that caused Hungary to. Become a communist country for many decades. And that made it difficult for prior researchers from the West to do. There were a couple of researchers who went, including my earlier mentioned friend, Robert Kramer. He traveled there once with Lugosi's fourth wife, doing research for that book of his. But staying there for extended periods of time, really digging into things, was difficult. There were other barriers, obviously, not being a native or even trained Hungarian speaker, reader, the archives, some disarray for years because people didn't care as much about the earlier period. Lugosi has gotten a tiny bit of acclaim in recent years in the 21st century in his home country because he's so famous in the West. But that's the only reason, you know, he left in something under a cloud, rightly or wrongly, when he left in 1919, he, 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 some of his later films, Hollywood films were shown in Hungary, but he was never in the, he was never a cultural icon there in the 20th century, like he became an American, certainly not after he leaves. And so they had never done, no one in Hungary was ever interested enough in him, in other words, to really do tremendous research in the periods we're talking about. So there were a lot of reasons, I think, while there had been some coverage of his life in Hungary, and for that matter, Germany, it had been relatively limited. So I've spent many, many weeks in Hungary each day, you know, eight, 10-hour days going through documents and so forth. And again, with the luxury of its post-communist era, the luxury of, for all those years I was living in Ireland and in so, so much closer proximity than, than we are in North America, certainly aided by my equal and wonderful friend, colleague, co-author Bill Kaffenberger on some of the trips, as well as, you know, a, a friend of his named Ray, wonderful gentleman, you know, often digging into areas where we weren't even sure if we'd find anything on Lugosi, because there were years where nobody really knew where he was. The same thing was true, really, of Germany, because there was so much I found in my time in Germany researching him, and there had been limited work in in Germany by previous scholars. So so the idea here was, yeah, to fill in the gaps. And in fact, the gaps were larger than what had been filled in when it came to the Hungarian and German period. And so all kinds of great things, fascinating things emerged in the books, the the I say books because it's a two volumes called Be- Becoming Dracula, and this includes everything from learning the first time he did anything close to a horror play, which he did as a relatively young actor, to the very fact that he was trying to start his own production company, Bela Lugosi Productions, in Berlin in 1920 when everybody else is running around making films like The Golem and releasing films like Caligari. So. So it was wonderful. It was it was a wonderful experience to spend so much time in those countries doing research. And even sometimes, you know, at places he had lived, trotting the boards, literally, at a theater where he played for an entire season in 1903, 1904, in what was then bar, present-day Timisoara in Romania, which, to end my uh, answer, I would say was yet another fascinating but complicated matter of researching Legosi after World War One, there were parts of Hungary that became part of Romania, including his hometown. So it was it was basically Hungary, and I say basically because it was part of Austro-Hungarian, the empire, but it was Hungary when he was there, after he left, after the World War One, some of these areas became part of Romania, which itself was of course for many years a, a communist country. So so wonderful stuff but not always the easiest in terms of research.
6: Well, it sounds like you put a whole heck of a lot of work into this. I can't wait to read that.
7: Well, thank you very much. And we did, and Volume 1 really covers everything we just talked about. It finishes with him aboard ship and, and, and arriving, as he does, in America illegally because he was working on the ship even though he got fired. as a worker on the ship during passage. And he basically comes into America illegally. And in, the, in, that's where volume one ends. Volume two picks up with him getting to New York City from New Orleans, where he came in illegally to the port and him situating himself with first the, uh, the Hungarian American theater and then all the way through the moment that he signs on the dotted line to play Dracula. For Universal, so that's Volume Two. So it's quite a story. It's really we're talking about forty-eight years of his life. So and and thus two books, two volumes that comprise one overarching story.
6: It's so remarkable to even realize that he was forty-eight when he played Dracula. You'd think that it was much more of a young man's role, and because he does not look that old.
7: Lugosi did look younger than his years when he really first becomes a Hollywood star. Not just a notable actor, character actor, but a real Hollywood star. You know, we're talking about a fellow in his late 40s. And he looks younger. And I think this is a big part of his appeal as this kind of very, he was meant to be attractive to women in the film. He was meant to seem very sexy to female viewers. The film even advertised with taglines about you know the strangest love story ever told the strange type of passion that Dracula was about, you know, the allure of the vampire and so forth. And he looked younger than his years. And I think that certainly through 1935, 36, that first five years as a real star from the release of the film Dracula onward, he he looks still young enough in his late 40s, early 50s, that it helps make him into... Well, he becomes a horror film star, but for, for that brief period, relatively brief period, he be also becomes certainly a bit of a, uh, an attractive male star as well. And it, and it is aided immeasurably, I think, by the fact that he looked younger than his late 40s when he plays that role.
6: So where's the best place for people to keep up with you and your work?
7: I'm certainly on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. A couple of my films are on Vimeo. And I also put a lot of my work, and this is maybe less known to to, to people, but academia.edu is a place that I not only post a lot of my work, I'm an academic, you know, I spent most of my career as as a film historian inside, you know, the university as a professor. Academia.edu, not only do I post news there, but I even post a lot of my stuff free to download. when when the publishers will let me or when they haven't completely caught me, I guess you could say, because I love for people to be able to access this stuff. You know, I think, uh, I think scholarship, and I I hope most scholars I do believe feel this way. I hope more will do so. More universities will feel this way that, you know, we do this scholarship and it is for people to access. And so rather than an expensive book cost, always, it's great to be able to have the stuff where people can download it, read it for free. And there's some of my work there at Academia.U, not just on horror films, Lugosi, but some of my other work about other aspects of film history.
6: Well, Mr. Rose, thank you so much for your time. This has been great.
7: Well, it's so very kind of you to ask me to talk and to indulge me as I've talked and talked and talked. So it's really wonderful to have a, a kind ear to listen to. These old stories, but old stories that I hope still have some modern relevance or at least modern interest. So thank you very, very much. There's a town I know where the hipsters go called Bedrock. Twitch, twitch. When you get an it's then you do the twitch in Bedrock. Twitch, twitch. Cause the twitching's fine. Have yourself a time in Bedrock. Twitch, Twitch! He's excited. He's marvelous. He's Fred. Well, we'll Fred? twist around the clock tonight in bedrock. Twist, Twitch,
1: And rock is gonna roll. And rock is gonna
2: roll. And rock is gonna roll. And rock is gonna
1: roll. And rock is gonna roll. And
2: rock is gonna roll. Sorry. <laughs> Must have dozed off.
6: All right, we are back, and we're talking about Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, and let's talk a little bit more about Maurice Duke, and let's talk about Freddie's movie, Fuck em, which is just a fantastic documentary all about Maurice Duke and his career, and it takes you from the beginning all the way to the end. You, you managed to fit it his whole life in there, or a version of it, I should say, and wow, what a story. What an amazing man.
0: He was. I was so lucky. Don't make me cry, Mike.
6: How did you decide that you wanted to do a doc about your dad?
0: Okay. There's a woman, she worked at BMI. She's a really good friend of mine. Her name is Doreen Ringer Ross. And she handles a lot of composers and she goes to a lot of film festivals. And she's sort of the darling of a lot of uh, composers. And she's one of my closest friends. And she said, God, you quote your dad every day. You tell a Maurice Duke story every day. Why don't you just make a documentary about him? And I went, why don't I? Why don't I? I've never made a movie, ever. But I found through my brother Alan Duke, all the footage that we had from the 25th divorce anniversary party that we threw for my parents at the Friars Club, which had all of his comic friends roasting him. And it was my parents' actual 25th divorce anniversary. They were the best of friends. And that footage was valuable footage. And it was we owned it. Phil Foster used to make fun during the, the, the Fires Club roasting because we were filming it. Don't think for a second, Duke's not selling this like he because why were we filming it? But look, I got all my footage from it. Except that somebody came in and filmed my dad for some other documentary. So we had that footage, and he's actually telling. The whole story, because he's being interviewed as this elderly man, three months away from death, telling his own story. So between the Friars Club roast with all the comics and that, and then some of my voice and some interviews with his friends, I had a movie.
6: I imagine that it had to be pretty challenging for you just to figure out what you're going to focus on, just because he did live such a long and storied life.
0: I didn't know how I was going to do anything. I just went around interviewing people for a while. And then I went around for a couple of years trying to find the editor. I could not find an editor is everything with the documentary because they go through all the footage and they figure out really how to tell the story. When I, once I found my editor, I was in, then it was a real film, but I stole i like my dad. I stole stuff. I stole everything. I mean, I'm, I can't sell it. The music rights. I mean, In order to tell the story really well, I had to have expensive music, footage from movies that my dad did. I did not ask for rights. You know, I just grabbed it.
6: (laughs) So what was the story when it was done? I mean, did you get it out to festivals or were you not even allowed?
0: I was probably not allowed, but I wasn't really making any kind of movies yet until that one. And people thought I was a filmmaker after that. So then the next Because of the rights, my brother, who's an entertainment attorney, said, you can't. You're going to be in trouble. You just can't. But I can show it to anyone I want. And I can show it anywhere I want, if not make a dime. So I literally show it to everyone. I put it on Facebook all the time. I I show it. People are in love with Maurice Duke. I've made people fall in love with my dad. Then he's been dead for 25 years. Because he's very lovable. (laughs) You
2: just said, Fuck yeah.
3: That's a sequel.
2: What I loved in the movie, Freddie, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mike, was that everyone had a different version of the
3: right. Hall story. Yeah. They were at yeah. Sinatra's yeah. Yeah. house. They were, you know, I mean, it just goes all over the place.
6: The story about uh, your dad's cane being shortened. And yeah, Nemo. <laughs> it's so good. That
0: was truly when Nemo and my dad came out by train from New York. And so he thought the weather out here maybe. Made him a little taller, but it was really that it was being shaved down. Well, he
3: was sleeping. There's all of this really hysterical stuff, and all of this very broad stuff that he did, and Snoopy, Pooh and all that stuff. My, I got to say, my favorite Maurice moment was at your dad's funeral. Somebody got up and they said, "When uh, Oliver maybe was born, or when Alan was born, Maurice went into the." I'm sorry, born. could you tell the story?
0: He walked into Cedars and he said, I just want to be around long enough to see the kid get bar mitzvah." No,
3: that's not the story.
0: And he literally lived. The that's story the is story.
3: he went into the nursery and lifted the blankets to make sure the, the legs were healthy.
0: Oh, that was oh, Alan. That was Alan? Yeah, that was um, To make sure he didn't have polio.
3: That,
6: you know, amazing. Just amazing. Freddie, tell me more about some of the other stuff that you've done. I'm very curious about this new one.
0: Oh, this new one is my mother died at 66 years old, and I started to have a lot of anxiety. I was just about to be 66, and I thought I was going to die. You know, you have that fear. I so much anxiety that I was like, what can I do with this anxiety? And I was like, okay, I'll make a a movie. (laughs) Doesn't everyone? And um, I'm going to just reveal some of the names in my movie, (laughs) because I haven't told anyone. But the movie's going to be seen on Sunday, so fuck it. Um, I, I've kept it a secret. Some of my best friends are actresses, and I don't know if you know them, but Kimberly Beck, yours, mine, and out. like, she worked with Hitchcock. And Trace, Tracy Brooks Swope, a lot of stuff. She was married to John Abelson. John Abelson would come visit my dad in the hospital when he was dying. Um, Stacy Nelkin from Halloween, you know, whatever. A lot of my best friends are actresses, whereas Arquette is in it. And um, John Hawks, the, the really serious actor that's like been up for Oscars, like really. So anyway, it's got a, a, a really fun cast and it makes no sense. And it's very much something my dad would make. <laughs> 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 and it turns out to be a dream at the end. And it plays in the North. It just played in the Chain Film Festival in New York. And it won for the best ensemble because it has a good ensemble. It has a good cast. But um, it probably makes very little sense, and it probably seems very self indulgent because it's me, I'm dead, and people are talking shit about me. And I said to anyone who was in it, "Do you want to be in my film?" And they didn't ask any questions. They're like, okay. And then I go talk shit about, say anything you want, bad about me. It's okay. And they're like, "What?" And I went, "You yeah, just do it." It's like a mockumentary, so they did, and that's what the film is. And it's an hour and a half.
3: How much was cut out?
0: The kid stays in the picture. I'm like, everyone stays in the picture. I would not cut anyone out if they gave me the time to be in my movie. Like, do you know the uh, child actor, Billy Mooney? So one day I said, I called Billy and I went, you know, the little thing that you put on Facebook every Monday and you sing a little song. Can you send me a video of you talking shit about me or say anything you want about me? I'm dead already. That's all I gave him. That's all I gave him in 10 minutes. He sent his back to me. I didn't have to go to people's houses all the time, but I did. Um, But I didn't go to Billy's. It it just, that's what the movie is. It's like a hodgepodge of like whatever, like Dada art. You know, they would throw things out, see what made art. That's what that is. That's what my movie is. And it's called Dying for Control.
2: I can't wait to see it.
0: The other movie I made is called Six Degrees of Pussy. And it's not really about vaginas. It's actually about how much I love cats, but it is, you know, it's vulgar. It, there's a lot of vulgar stuff in my, because I'm Marie Stuks' daughter. I can't help it. Is there a guy in a gorilla suit in your movie? I forgot to get that, but guess what my dad's in the movie. Cause he, I can't do anything without my dad there. So like, so um, my son's wife is my editor always on my stuff. And she would just throw my dad, like footage of my dad, like on a wall behind whatever was going like like you see the ghost of maurice duke kind of everywhere because he's he's so important to me by the way i did a play the play was about my sex life in the 70s it was really out there my dad would have loved it it was really funny and um one time i went in for a tech rehearsal before the show and because i had my computer but i didn't realize what was going on you see maurice duke huge, like eight feet tall on the stage in a play theater. And I'm like, oh my God, the ghost of Maurice Dukas is- came into the theater. But it's really because there was an image of my father on my computer and it was bouncing off.
2: That was a terrific one woman show, by the way. That was terrific. Thank you. Uh, I know Maurice kept on saying he wanted to do the Ross, what was it? The Russ Columbo story?
0: He only writes, rights, he writes the Russ Columbo story all his life until he died. And no, he never made it. But didn't Russ Colombo die in Rosemary Clooney's house?
2: You were friends with her son, right?
0: Son was my Miguel was my boyfriend. I am pretty sure that was it yeah, a gunshot.
3: I think it was cleaning his gun.
0: I feel like it was ten nineteen North Roxbury Drive, which is Rosie was Rosie's house.
2: Wow! Oh my God. So you're friends with all those folks because you were all went to Beverly Hills High together, right?
0: Yes. That's how
3: right. I
2: know.
0: Yep. Right. Wow. So I, wow. Did, I did grow up on Rexbury Drive, but you not did? where but not where the rich people did.
3: Yeah. <laughs> south of Wilshire.
2: The other south side. Of
0: of the other side of the tracks. That's You, right.
2: you were a million dollars south of Wilshire.
0: Yep. Right. Three or five now. But it was a fabulous house that my dad bought for 42000
1: No, $25,000. Wow.
2: Well, we know where we siphoned off the budget for, for Bella Lagosi. It could have been hundred grand, but I got a fucking house.
0: Oh, right. It was right around that time.
2: I mean,
6: what would you do with $100,000 to make that movie better?
3: I'd take a little more time with the script.
2: <laughs> and maybe see if there were Abner and Costello impersonators <laughs> around. I don't know. Really, what, what else would you do? You, you couldn't, there was nothing more to do, right?
3: Yeah, you're right, that, Jamie. Yeah, you're I mean, I, I may, maybe spend a little more on the sets, um, on the actors, on the actors.
6: I thought for sure when there were two gorillas, one a Duke gorilla and one a gorilla gorilla, that when Sammy leads the one away, that he would have taken the wrong gorilla and it would have led to hilarity there. I thought it was like, okay, that seems pretty obvious to me that that's the
3: joke. Oh, yeah, well, they missed the joke. Because, well, not that joke, but they missed another joke where the the other gorilla comes up to Duke and and he can see that it's like it's like a lady gorilla and it's getting amorous with Duke. Sammy should have turned the cameras. He always gets the girls.
6: Man, Sammy's voice after a while just really gets to you.
4: Come on, Doogie, let's go. The doctor's probably busy. And besides,
0: I forgot something at the hut. What? I forgot to stay here. I'm getting out of here. Relax, cuckoo. Anybody who
4: live in a creep joint like this must be a moronic idiot. Good
0: morning.
2: I'm Dr. Zabor. Welcome to my
4: creep joint. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry, Mr. Idiot. I didn't mean to call you creep joint a creep joint. I think think nothing of it.
0: I'm going to say that Sammy really was the nicest, um, almost innocent, childlike person. I mean, I think it's hard to launch a career if you're an impersonator of Jerry Lewis. So I'm not sure that it was ever anything came. And I don't think any, I think he just wished that it would the rest of his life. But the sweetness in him was so dear that when I interviewed him for Fuckum, he told me the sweetest story about my dad. My dad called him and he said, Sammy, do you want to come with me to a play tonight? So he thought he was going to a huge play and he got all dressed up. My dad picked him up. They went to the valley to where my dad's sister's kid, a cousin of mine, was in like a school play, <laughs> and my dad took it really seriously and showed up as the big producer, you know, empresario. Like, and Sammy just thought it was so sweet because it was. I mean, it was that side.
6: All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show.
0: Uno soy un árbol, un hombre desnudo.
5: Un soldado verde
1: Un niño es el elegido ¿Te has
6: el
5: ¿Tú estás loco? Estoy hasta los cojones de la pensión compensatoria
3: De los jueces ¡Sinó la bruja de su madre! ¡Aparte,
2: señora! ¡Abre, sí, Silvia, perdona A ver, ¿me ¿te pregunto yo lo que le das
1: de vender al niño? ¡Aquilera!
0: La brujería, el concepto nació a ti. ¿Qué haces con la escoma?
4: Barrer no, desde luego.
2: Pero ellas nunca piensan lo que parece que piensan. ¿Y qué piensan? No lo sé, pero piensan
3: otra cosa.
0: ¿Y nosotras qué somos?
3: La chica de tu edad, lo que tiene que hacer es drogarse.
6: Folla como una perra, miente todo lo que puedas engañar a los hombres. ¿Qué estás en la edad?
5: Ha llegado el momento de la venganza. ¿A dónde vais?
3: A impedir que tu madre destruya la civilización occidental. ¿Te parece bien?
4: ¡Pero! ¡Ayuda! ¡Se ¡Si hará justicia! ¡Justicia! ¿Pero qué
3: dices? ¡Tú eres idiota! ¿Que me dejo llevar?
6: that's right we'll be back next week with a look at alex de iglesia's witching and bitching until then i want to thank this week's co-host jamie rich and freddie jamie and rich what are you guys working on these days are you still writing together or doing separate projects
2: i'm still writing i um i just finished an original christmas script yeah and i teach uh screenwriting at usc and uh working on a Television series about the first Super Bowl with producer John Katzman, whose grandfather Sam Katzman, Maurice Duke, worked with. Still doing that and um and uh, also making time to to text and call and email Jamie uh with uh bits and memories uh, several times a
3: week.
0: Oh, do you guys talk that much? That's so sort sweet.
2: Of yeah, well, with uh, with emails and text. Yeah, and I can't stand to
3: look at them yeah. anymore. So uh so the text and email <laughs> is is the way to go, Jimmy. What are you working on these days? Uh, I'm I'm an executive, a creative director at a company called Fremantle. that takes up all my time. It's a really great. It's a good creative outlet.
6: Freddie, is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your work?
0: You know, Instagram, Freddie Duke, F R E D D E D U K E, Freddie Duke at Instagram. Or you'll see things if I'm doing them. I will post about it. I keep having to post about this film festival. And I keep I'm like, okay, last call, please buy a ticket. <laughs> like, like a little carnival, you know. Uh, uh, uh. I felt like I was from a circus family. So it's like you know, put up the tent. If anyone ever, if anyone's ever seen a movie with my daughter, Augie Duke, she does the really great a lot of low budget Maurice Duke-esque movies. She stars on and she's in my movie, my daughter.
6: Well, you were in a movie that a friend of mine always talks about, "Vasectomy: A Delicate Matter."
0: Oh, wow! He well, who always who talks about that? <laughs> my
6: my friend Chris Gore. He runs a film threat, and he loves vasectomy. So
0: I, I don't even know what to say to that, except but, except to cringe and say Bob Burge, who made the movie, was a friend of my dad's. And so when he would get money, he would put together a movie and they'd never made sense as my dad's movies didn't, neither did this guy and they would throw me in.
6: Well, thank you so much folks for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps a projection booth take over
4: the world. (music) Does she love me? It's too soon to know Can I believe her When she tells me so Is she fooling? Is it all a game? Am I the fire? Or just the other flame? Now alone oh, oh. acting Oh, she's playing a little far Now, if she loves me Let her tell me so I can't hold her If she wants to go Oh, I'll curl. It's so, it's too soon, way too soon to know Now does she love me, it's too soon to know Am I the fire, or just the other glow If she... It's too soon.